Ready? Yeah, totally unfair assignment. Philippians 2, 1 to 11, you better open your Bible. We're, we we got to go places today. We don't have any time to, to spare. So, you know, the end of our passage uh, today says uh, something pretty amazing, but that because of, of how Jesus lived, how he died, that God highly exalted him, that God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the glory of God the Father. Every knee would bow and every tongue confess on earth, in heaven, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the glory of God the Father. That's amazing. It's amazing. You know, this, this confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, which you can say with me right now, Jesus Christ is Lord. You could say it with me right now. Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, that this basic confession has been really the, the core and the foundation of the creed from the very first church. From the very first church. Paul wrote about it a lot. Romans 10.9, which is a scripture many have memorized, is this. It's kind of part of what we often share when people want to become Christians. If you're here today and you're saying, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, this is the core of it. Jesus Christ is Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says, No one can say Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord unless they say it by the Holy Spirit. The only way people can say Jesus is Lord is by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they're just going to say from their flesh, Jesus is cursed. It was a baptismal statement. Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again and again, we see that people were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to know this is uh, contextually and culturally revolutionary for Philippi, for Romans, for Greeks, for the Philippians. Here's why. In the Roman Empire, you were to honor and worship the emperor. This happened actually before Jesus came, where the emperors were, were regarded as curios, as lord. And there was a kind of a deification of the emperor, and this is a context and idea of emperor worship, right? So Jesus Christ as Lord was actually a treasonous revolutionary statement in Rome. Does everybody get this? Some of you already know it. If you don't, now you do. Not only that, though, in the Roman world, in the, in the Greek world, there were many gods, little g-gods. Some of us maybe come from backgrounds where there are many gods. There are our ancestors, or there, there are um, uh, deities that we, that we once worshipped, or our ancestors once worshipped, right? And so, but we, we also live in a culture, we won't talk about our culture quite yet, but in, but in that culture, because of these many gods, there was what we now call, in our culture, pluralism. There were many ways to view and understand eternity, ways to view and understand the unseen world, Many different uh, powers that were called upon through witchcraft and through worship and through other means. And Jesus Christ as Lord is, is this. This is, 
the very heart of Christianity. Are you ready? There's Jesus Christ and everyone else. It's a statement of exclusivity. It creates a lot of tension, honestly. It creates a, a lot of challenge, right? Because the other gods aren't really gods. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ has been exalted to the highest place. There's one name that every knee bows to. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. In heaven meaning other spiritual powers. Other created spiritual beings. The unseen world that God created. On the earth, all the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations. There's one name that lifts above everything else. And under the earth, those who've gone before us in history, there was a name that hadn't uh, uh, dropped into history yet. But even they were going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. So here we are in Davis, California. Um, we are many uh, at UC Davis. Are we not so unlike Philippi? Are we not so challenged by this idea that someone else lays claim to me? Think about it. These words are really key in our culture, in our history of the United States. Independence, autonomy, empowerment, democracy, all of these things that are part of being American or being uh, in, in California or in Davis, does everybody understand there's a deep, deep, deep independence drives us? I need to hear if you agree or not. Because we're not going anywhere in this passage today until we got to get here before we can go anywhere else. Because being a Christian is, was, and is very countercultural. It was very slap in the face in Philippi. And very slap in the face in America. If you really know what Christianity is. If you really say Jesus Christ is Lord. You with me a little bit? So if you're sitting there distracted... If you're sitting there not knowing why you're at church today, um, this is going to slap you. It's going to slap you. Don't slap your neighbor. Not fair. So you can say it with me. Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah, say it with me. Jesus Christ is Lord. It glorifies God the Father. Roll it. Is our video, are we going to roll our video? Or are we going to just roll with the passage? We got the video? Check out this video.
Yeah, sorry for some of the cutoff words there, but um, I, like, I like the big drum line there because it's like, this is a revolutionary passage. And, and, it, and, it, and it should rile us and stir us. So here's a fundamental question for this morning. Who's in charge of your life? Who's running the show? Who's in charge of your life? Who's running the show? Now, Frank Sinatra is one of those long ago dead and buried, right? Uh, maybe not so long ago. He wrote a song. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. But more, much more than this, say it with me, I did it my way. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, say it with me, I did it my way. Okay? A little generational curve, older people help the younger people. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew when I bit off more than I could chew, but through it all, when uh, there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out, I faced it all, I stood tall, and did it my way. Okay? All right, we'll come up into the, the 70s, Billy Joel. He said it was whose life? My life. All right, here's the lyric. I didn't need you to worry for me because I'm all right. I don't want you to tell me it's time to come home. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. All right, come up to the 90s. Bon Jovi. It's my life. Lyric, it's now or never. I ain't going to live forever. I just want to live while I'm alive. It's my life. My heart's like an open highway. Check the next line. Like Frankie said, I did it my way. <laughs> I just want to live while I'm alive. Say it with me. It's Fun rocker. I was going to go one direction. Story of my life. There's lots of, <laughs> we could bring it even up into the contemporary, but it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We get it. You own your life. You take your life. You, you move with your life. It's yours. And really, that's, that's the core. Who's in charge of my life? Who's running this show? And um, we've lived in a culture for 10 years since the, the introduction of the smartphone uh, in an increasingly um, self-focused and self-managed life. I mean, it's been documented in a lot of different ways. Hopefully, I'm not challenging anybody too much. It's just a reality. My friend Craig Detweiler, who's been uh, head of the film department at Pepperdine and is taking the presidency of the Seattle Theological School, wrote a, wrote a book about five years ago called I Gods. Um, and talking about what and how uh, we become even more reinforced in all of those roles. And though we're supposed to be more connected, maybe we feel a little more distant and lonely, and maybe that's you this morning, as we take charge of my life. The other challenge, too, with this uh, Jesus Christ is Lord and being in charge of me, it feels a lot more secure to be in charge of my own life if I'm running my own show. And by the way, I'm not dismissing you from the responsibility of living your life. You have your one and only life, and you manage you. Does that make sense? You manage you. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. But the challenge that we have, too, is if Jesus Christ is Lord is this idea in which we are experiencing 
someone taking the lead in our life, you know, we've had a breakdown in church and in education and in government and in business where again and again and again, authority disappoints us. Authority lets us down. We can't trust authority, the people who are in charge of us. So it's much more secure just to take charge of me and say, I own my own life. I am going to live my life the way I want to live my life. And I'm going to do it as the best I can. The challenge is for those who, who become Christians is, is that's not it. Some people have been saved to a Christianity with a Savior, but not a Lord. And I, I'm here to tell you this morning that Christianity is a false Christianity. It's not real. If you ask forgiveness for your sin, but you still say, it's my life and I'm going to do whatever I want to do with my life, you weren't taught the fullness of what Christianity is. And I apologize on behalf of whoever taught you that. Christianity is the forgiveness and the grace and the refreshment and the healing and the empowerment and the adoption and the wonder and the mystery of living in relationship with the God who created you. Yay, God! <laughs> right? But God designed life. He created life. He came and lived life in the person of Jesus Christ. And when he did that, he became our Lord. He had every right upon our life, the ownership of our life, the leadership of our life. So we say, Jesus, you know, what does that look like? What does this look like? What does that look like in my life? So that it's not my way, it's your way. Now, it's just all set up walking through Philippians 2, 1, 11, but we couldn't get there until we got that. Is everybody still on board? Okay, and you got a Bible open on your phone, like me, <laughs> or on paper. But let's just walk through Philippians 2, 1 to 11, because um, this, this, this shift, right, which requires one thing, which I'm going to call you to later. It's a word we don't like, don't use very much in church, but it's a really good word. It's a Christian word. It's a biblical word. It's the word repentance, right? The only way out of, of self-rule and pride and all kinds of these things that we just talked about that are endemic in our life or in our culture is repentance. And by repentance, we come alive into a new way. And then it starts changing not only me, but we. And that we, wow, that we is something that will change. Davis and the surrounding communities in the world. That we that's full of me's, full of humility and selflessness and honor in how they live. Quite remarkably different than other people. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins with the word therefore. Therefore points to what was before. It's followed by an if-then statement in, in verses 1 and 2. If you've received these things from Christ, then there's these outcomes in your behavior. So 
so that if you've received these things in Christ, and that therefore is there, it's basically saying, it's connecting to chapter one and what we heard Tom and, and Kevin preach on, connecting to living in Christ. And this idea of living, living in Christ and dying is gain and uh, living this out here. Chapter 1, verse 21, which is a key for the first message in this series, is where Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's just remember that because this next 2, 1 to 11 is pointing back to, I think, a couple of key ideas here. First, therefore, to live is Christ and die is gain. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. Chapter 1, verse 21, you can go back and listen to the podcast of that message as well. Here's the fundamental bottom line. Something had changed in Paul's life. When we first meet Paul, Paul is large and in charge. Paul is rolling. Paul is PhD level. Paul is making money. Paul has position. And Paul is full of zeal and, and, and faith in the Jewish, Jewish religion. Is everybody with me? He, he had, had something going on. And Paul... He was living for Yahweh, but Paul, in some ways, was living for Paul. And something had shifted, so Paul was no longer living for Paul. Paul was living for Christ. Something had to happen in my life, so Jeff was no longer living for Jeff. right? But Jeff is living first for Jesus. And I'm trusting Jesus with the residual positive effect in my life since he's in charge of the whole universe. I felt like that was a good exchange. But so Paul had, had to realize this. And as Paul was living for Christ, it began to take on a certain look. Where do we find him as he writes this letter to Philippi? We find him in jail. So he was willing to go to jail for his faith. He was willing to, to, to let go of the freedoms that he had to move around in culture and in society and in comfort to be in jail. He was someone who had to face his struggles, you know, with the courage to live his life. He was someone that, that would begin to say, I want to do all that I can to build others up. He's not asking for a lot for himself while he's in jail. He's like, I, I'm concerned for how it's going with you, Philippians. How are you doing? What's going on in your life? This is where you need to be growing. And something had shifted, so even though he's in jail, he's experiencing joy. Jail generally is not a joyful place. I've been in a number of jails and prisons. I got to go out at the end of the day, which was really good. But, but joy for Paul had come internally to him because he was living under the authority direction, and leadership of Jesus Christ. Everybody with me? To live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm receiving things even though that I'm in a limited context for the, the sake of the gospel. It's better for me there than to be in the Sanhedrin, to be in the, the head of the, the president of the Pharisaical school, to be the person who's you know, leading in dramatic ways in Jerusalem, among the Jews. He had been so captured by the forgiveness and grace and leadership and, and power of the resurrected Jesus Christ that he was changed. Move forward uh, in looking back, right? So therefore points to what was before. Paul was changed. 
verses 1, or verses 27 to 30 in chapter 1, talks about the Philippians change, because it says that they're going to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. They're going to live in a way as a people, in a way that reflects Jesus Christ as Lord. Kevin shared this last week. Something had changed in the Philippians' life. Let's remember who they are. Lydia, the businesswoman, head of household, first person to invite them to be able to stay and experience the hospitality and welcome in Philippi. The jailer and his family who became Christians because of um, uh, Paul and Silas worshiping God after getting beaten up and not running away when the, the gates opened up through a powerful act of God. And all of these others, they had experienced this fundamental shift and change. So Paul can say to them, stand in Stand firm in one spirit. Strive together for the faith of the gospel. Don't be afraid of the opposition because all of you are confessing this fundamental reality. Jesus Christ is Lord. And as you do that individually, you become a powerful community, a powerful we that's walking this faith out in Philippi. So if you've received these things, Philippians, if this is really your reality in Christ, then live this out in these ways. And then there come some commands at the end of verse 2 and in verse 3 and 4. You know, there's not going to be selfish ambition and vain conceit. There's not going to be um, looking to your own interests, but you're, gonna, you're going to look to the interests of others. You're going to be continuing to experience this idea of, of the wonder of not being in charge, of humility, of selflessness, of giving, and just like the first believers. Let's think back to a great biblical example. If you're taking notes, write it down. Go back and look at it this week. Acts chapter 2, 42 to 46. The, the wonderment of this first Jerusalem church was that the Holy Spirit came and the Holy Spirit shook things up <laughs> and all of these people in Jerusalem understood and confessed, say it with me, Jesus Christ is Lord. Say it with me. Jesus Christ is Lord. And their life began to shift, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. They didn't consider anything as their own, but they shared freely with anyone who had a need. Because I'm no longer the owner. I'm the manager, and what matters actually is my brother, is my sister, is the welfare of the we, because we're all following Jesus. And together, we are a community that is going to be able to support and encourage and strengthen and build each other up in dramatic ways. And that Jerusalem church grew and grew and grew and grew, and God said, wait, I got to do something because they're not remembering that. I said, go to Judea and Samaria, and so there was... A persecution that came and Stephen was killed and boom, they go out to Judea and Samaria and onwards. Everybody understand? But there's these glimpses in Acts 2 and Acts chapter 5 when Cornelius' household comes that there's this incredible loss of self-interest, of self-grabbing, uh, self-grandizing. It was removed from those people. And so Paul's basically saying in these commands... Look, you are now looking very, very differently. 
And it's because in your relationships, verse 5, you're beginning to look like Jesus, whom you're confessing as Lord. And he says, let's remember. And this, this passage, verses 5 to 11, is called um, is one of the very central passages in the New Testament. It's called the Christ hymn often. It is a passage which very explicitly shows and explains how God, who is God, who is not human, became human. This is the passage that explains very centrally the idea of the incarnation. The idea that God came and made his dwelling among us. That, that God came and took up residence in the neighborhood, in the apartment complex, so that, that we could see what is God really like? Who is God really? And so in this Christ hymn, we have the example of Christ's humility. I want to read it to you because it's such a beautiful and powerful passage where it speaks of Jesus and it says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, to be grasped onto, to be held onto. Rather, he made himself nothing by the, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. This is the theological concept of kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S, kenosis. You can look it up, uh, uh, Google the term, read a little bit more of it. But it's the concept of self-emptying. And it's a bit the very heart of this passage, and we're going to loop back around it as we close this message. So hang in there with me on this thought. Kenosis means I have rights, power, privileges, position, which we all do because we live in Davis or the surrounding communities, because we attend a university, because we're university educated, because we can pay our rent most months. <laughs> we have our, we have food every day. We have, we have resources. We, ha we have advantage. We have opportunity. We have doors that are going to open. Is everybody with me on that? And, and now, Obviously, Jesus living eternally in, in union and in fellowship with who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had every advantage in the universe. And it says that when he became a human being, when he became a baby, which is one of the reasons I like that video, when he became a helpless uh, baby reliant upon human beings um, in, his, in his infancy and in his childhood, he took all the privileges and the qualities and the attributes of being God. And he, and he said, those are going to sit right there for the next 33 years. They're going to sit there. I'm going to challenge some of you about how you think about Jesus today. This is called Christology, the study of who Christ is. you got to lean into it and push into it because if we don't know who Christ is, then... How can we trust him? How can we follow him? He wants us to know who he is. The amazing thing about the incarnation and about this idea of kenosis is Jesus said, while I'm on the earth, I'm going to live as a man, not as God. I'm going to choose. I am God. <laughs> I'm God and man, same time, right? But I'm going to choose to lay aside the rights, freedoms, privileges, power, position, putting it here, 
and I'm going to live out a human life in perfection. That's why Paul, when he's reflecting in the book of Romans, he says, he calls Jesus the second Adam. It's man how man was really supposed to live. The life of Jesus. Right? So he operated in a body. He hungered. He thirsted. He went to the restroom. He did all these. He just lived human life. Faced everything we face for 33 years on the earth. Everybody with me? That's what this passage is saying. And as he did that and lived a human life, he said, as I'm laying aside these privileges, I'm choosing as a human being to live as a slave, to live as a servant, to live as one who thinks about you before me, thinks about you and your welfare. I'm going to be aware constantly of the needs around me. And I'm going to stay intimately connected with the reality of, of Godhood and my connection with my Father by withdrawing and connecting, right? But I'm going to empty myself of that. And I'm going to live that kind of life. And then the next verse that says, he lived the life of obedience. Obedience meaning because he was choosing to say, while I'm here, I'm not God. I'm not acting as God. I am God, but I'm not acting in that positional and power and authority. I'm going to live as a human. And so what does that mean that he lived in obedience? Have you ever been curious about that? Have you come to a satisfying answer about that? What it means is that he was obedient to the plan that had been hatched at the beginning of creation, of which he was intimately aware but in his human life, he stayed connected to through his intimacy with his father. And so we read in scripture, in the book of John and other places, that every day Jesus checked in and said, what am I supposed to say today? What am I supposed to do today? Check me on this. Go back and explore your Bible. But Jesus basically said, I do what I see the father doing. And I say what I hear the Father saying. Jesus did this because you're a woman, you're a man, you're living a human life. And we can listen and hear what the Father's saying. And we can look and see what the Father's doing and join him in it. And everything about Jesus was to say to you and to me, this is how it's done. This is how it's lived out. That's why in John 13, he, he washed the disciples' feet. That's why he called them in, in, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he said, look, you know what? Anyone who wants to be first is going to be last. Whoever wants to be great is going to be servant of all. Because you find yourself in laying aside the power, the position, the authority, the money, the opportunity that you have, and saying, how goes it with my brother? How goes it with my sister? How goes it with my community, Discovery Church? How goes it with my Discovery group? How goes it with my navigators group? You know, you're walking around, you're just, you're saying, I want, I want others to succeed. I want others to be honored. I want others to have opportunity and privilege and to, that I have had. And I'm ready to give that to you. 
I'm ready to share that with you and offer that to you. You know, um, one of the assurances here is that the end game with Jesus, right, was um, he was obedient to death, even death on a cross, which was uh, providing us the, the savior, the saving grace, the power to forgive our sins. Because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need a savior. We need a savior. We need a healer. We need, we need redemption. We need reformation in our lives, right? And so, but Jesus accomplished that. You can't earn your own salvation. You can't live well enough, perform well enough, do good works well enough, be moral enough. You can't do any of that. Jesus did it once and for all on the cross. It's why we celebrate communion every week at Discovery Church. We're reminded, I need a savior. I need forgiveness. I'm being made into something more. But what we see is that, that God exalts him to the highest place. And this is just in line with uh, an assurance that we can, we can hear in Psalm 147, verse 6. God sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves with humility, because God opposes the proud, but lifts up the humble. There's over 100 verses in the scripture that talks about the fact that, that God's attracted to humility. God's attracted to contriteness. God's attracted to self-forgetfulness. God is attracted to the person who is able to let go of ownership, to sign over the papers, really, of, of your life. So you don't sing anymore, it's my life. You sing, it's your life. Sometimes I do that when that Bon Jovi rocking song's going on and I'm turning it way up and driving fast down the freeway. And I just make it a confession. All right. Who's in charge of your life? What does that look like? Um, let's just answer a couple of simple questions as we close and we move toward communion. I talked earlier about the concept of repentance. And we need to talk about what is humility. We can go to the next slide. Um, we really need to understand that. And it really means the root of it is of the earth. The way that I do it in my life is I say, um, God is God and I'm not God. God is God, and I'm not God. Something about me is rooted here on the earth. I had a beginning, and by God's grace, I'm going to have no end. But God is God. He had no beginning and has no end. And I find my life in, in finding him. Powerful statement because we get confused about what humility is. Thankful that we have a great teaching team here that, you know, gives input to each other. One of them on the teaching team gave this quote. Um, which is from mere Christianity. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Isn't that good? C.S. Lewis wrote that in Mere Christianity. Humility is not um, putting yourself down. It's a proper estimation of yourself, not low estimation of yourself. And humility is a choice. I want you to notice that in the Christ hymn it says, Jesus humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. 
Humility in your life is going to be a choice where you put your name in place, right? Jeff humbled himself. And then that humility takes action. It begins to look like something, right? In other words, I'm not prideful. I don't think too much of myself. I'm not living in shame, thinking too little of myself. I have a right estimation of myself. And then Jeff makes a choice. I humbled myself. And then it looks like something. What, what might humility look like? Because it looks like something in relationships. Well, that's what chapter 2, 1 to 3 says. This is what it looks like in community, Philippians. When you make that choice and you say, I humble myself. I humble myself. Humility asks questions and doesn't make assumptions. Pride knows it all. But humility lays that aside and says, maybe there's something I don't know and I need to ask questions. Humility gives room for listening. Humility knows that it doesn't know everything. Now this is pushing against some of the little g-gods of our own city, our own UC system, where we do know we are the expert. We are the smartest person in the room. <laughs> and that's rewarded. Humility is not really rewarded, is it? But Jesus says it is rewarded by the God who does know everything. <laughs> by the God who does have all power. And so he calls us to humility. Um, just moving along quickly, who's in charge of our life, who's running the show, you know, we need to understand uh, selflessness. So this idea of self-emptying rather than holding on to things. Um, there was a booklet, that, again, that was recommended um, that was very helpful to some of our teaching team. You might want to write it down, go online, take a look if you want to buy that for yourself. Next slide. It's by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The freedom of self just the just the title might draw you in, right? But this idea of self-focus versus self-deprecation. So I'm deciding to imitate Jesus' serving, servanthood in laying aside my rights and my preferences. And to look at somebody and say, your welfare is more important than my welfare. Your welfare is more important than my welfare. Let's talk about life example. Many of you in the room are single. Many of you in the room are on the front edge of your life. And as a single person, in the context of maybe roommates and different kinds of things, you can practice this idea of self-forgetfulness or selflessness in ways where, where a lot of these things are choices for you. And you're making those choices um, day by day to say, how can I live more selflessly within the context of these uh, selected relationships of with whom I'm living together? Some of you who are married in the room, a little ahead of, of uh, maybe in life of some of our, our singles in the room, you may also be single and in midlife and in that same situation, but those of you who are married understand that when you got married, 
um, you made a compact, a covenant, to say, I've made a one-time choice that's going to have a lifetime effect, right? We forget that a little bit because there's been so much culture of divorce. But in marriage, you, you learn the power of what this passage is about and about love and why it's so important single people walk away with at least this. It is so important to marry someone who is equally yoked to you in faith. Someone who would say, together, each of us is following Jesus Christ as Lord. Each of us is confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, if you're a Christian. Because here's the deal. My assurance, my wife's name is Heather. My assurance is that Heather has said Jesus Christ is Lord. So I had an assurance when she was 23 and we got married that over the course of her life, as she continued to confess that, she was probably going to look more and more like Jesus. Right? And she could think the same of me. Now stay with me on this. The, the power in a marriage, and sometimes it's not unlocked until year two or year five or year 30, is coming to that point where you say, I no longer have to think about me, or I'm choosing not to think about me because I'm counting on my spouse to think about me. The spouse can do that, and, and I can do that because I also have the assurance that she has a mindfulness for me, Heather, that, that she's thinking about what's best for me. So now we are mutually committed to each other's good and to our good together. And then you throw a kid or two into the mix. And then you learn what love and sacrifice and selflessness and humility where you're throwing up your hands and you're like, I have no idea what to do right now. Right? And then that little thing that the Bible calls an oikos, a household, becomes a little lab. It's a lab. Lecture and lab. Here we are at lecture. You're going home to lab. You're going home to your apartment and your roommates. You're going home to your family. How are you going to flesh this out? What's it going to look like? If you have the privilege of living with roommates who are also confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, are you in your household, there's some unity around that, and you can think about that. Wow, what could it look like? And as that begins to bubble up with groups of individuals choosing that together, families choosing that together, whew, that begins to stand out in a culture like ours. It begins to stand out in a city like ours. Well, I'm going to lop off a bunch of stuff as we close, but I, I, I do want to talk uh, just on the close about what this can mean for Discovery Church, what it can mean for your household. I have a quote. Um, if we can go to the next slide. It's um, actually answering this question or this idea of unity as a testimony of Jesus as Lord. Leonard Bernstein, uh, virtuoso violinist and conductor, um, You know, we, we have a great praise band here and different people who play in it. The bands are really interesting. Praise bands are really interesting because the only way it works 
is for that whole group that's up here and that's going to come back up here and lead us in worship songs in a moment to listen to each other, to humble themselves, to not fly off on crazy guitar riffs or drum solos or violin solos, you know, today. It's how are we listening to each other and how do we make one sound? How do we look to the, the worship leader? You know, in this context of Leonard Bernstein, he's talking about in the context of a symphony, of a conductor on the conductor stand directing the togetherness of hundreds of people in a full symphony orchestra. And, you know, he would always say, um, the second fiddle, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who could play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. You know, uh, a little cultural twist on this is, is saying, what's the hardest uh, position in an orchestra to Leonard Bernstein? And he says, second fiddle. You know, a lot of times in our family, in our apartment, in our church, we're called to lay down the beat, <laughs> or we're called to, to play harmony. We're not the lead vocalist. We're not the, the lead instrument or something like that. But together, right, there's a much more glorious sound. There's a symphony. There's a song of praise, right? And if you can think that Discovery Church is on this journey as we've entered this new year, as we are confident a new senior pastor is going to come and lead us forward, you know, to say, you know, if, if the Lord Jesus is conducting and that pastor is going to be the first violin, we're going to all have a role to be able to say there's going to be beautiful music that's played. And it's going to reflect that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's going to look like humility and selflessness and honor. Right? Do you want to be part of that, people? Then you're happy you're part of this church. Yeah, Lord, we just pray as we close this uh, time of reflection in this passage, and we just thank you for your servant, Paul. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you worked and spoke and operated through the apostle. We thank you so much that um, you, you caused him to write down the fullness of, uh, of this message, and that it wasn't just for Philippi, but it's actually for today. And uh, I pray, God, that, that you would just come, Holy Spirit, during our time in, in communion together and your table. Lord, I pray for every person who here who, by which your spirit would need to rest in a spirit of repentance. God, that you would rest in a spirit of repentance so that we would lay aside pride, that we would lay aside selfishness, that we would lay aside... Um, the things of the flesh, and that we're not doing it on our own, but because Jesus Christ, your Lord, your spirit will help us into the way of humility and selflessness and honor and edification of others. We pray, God, that as a people, we would truly be transformed during this season in Philippians to reflect more of you, that we could say with your servant Paul to live as Christ, to die as gain that we would be able to look around and say, yes, their conduct is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that we could know that we 
are having the mindset, the, the lifestyle, the, the resolve, the way of life, Jesus, that you had when you walked the earth. Lord, bless us now as we continue to worship you and respond to you. Amen.